No, it's great to be with you, um, Andrea and I. We, we love to come down to this beautiful part of the country. Uh, yesterday we left County Antrim and we stopped off in Bray to meet some Christians in a little church there. And they send their greetings to you and also the greetings from our church. We live up in County Antrim near a town called Randallstown, which is quite near the airport because with my work, our work, we do a little bit of travelling and uh, we're avoiding EasyJet at the moment because it's chaos, but we... We will be going over to France on Thursday to see our friends there. We lived in France. We lived in France for many years, church planting. So we always love to get back and see all our friends. And they're getting back after COVID as well, getting together for a national conference. I want to just encourage us this morning, uh, as I've been encouraged through studying the book of Colossians. And I want us to look at Colossians chapter 1 this morning. It's a really fascinating little book. It's only few chapters, four chapters, and uh, Paul was actually in prison when he wrote this book. So that, that should be encouraging in itself, but here was Paul in prison, who was not free, but managed to find the, the, the courage and the strength to write to people who were free and encourage them. Uh, in, in March, I was over in Romania at the Ukrainian border meeting some uh, Christians, and there were two girls that had managed to get out of Ukraine from the city of Dnipro, uh, uh, just by the river in central Ukraine. And the two sisters, their, their, their parents told them to get out. They were, I think, 18, 19 years of age. And they got the, night tra- they got the train from Dnipro to get across to Lviv. But halfway across, the train stopped and everyone had to get off at midnight. And they had to get off and sleep in the train station at midnight. And then in the morning, they were able to get another train down to Moldova. And then from Moldova, they happened to be staying with some Christians in the church there in southern Moldova who were coming to the conference that I was attending. And we were able to meet up. And one of the most encouraging things for me was that when they were on the train, that train that they had to get off at midnight, they decided, the two girls decided to ask everyone in their carriage, would they like to pray? Or would they mind if they prayed for them? And by the end of that, the whole carriage, everyone was praying the Lord's Prayer together. Now, I know it was extreme circumstances, but God uses these things to help us reevaluate what's really important and what isn't. You know? Is it really important in the grand scheme of things that two movie stars are taking each other to court? Who can, you know, who can waste a lot of time and a lot of money with each other? Or is it much more important to look at issues that are going to affect us for eternity? I mean, we've been singing some amazing songs this morning. And you're, you're going to see how these songs coincide with the passage. It's a fantastic passage. And when Paul uh, first heard about, I think, the Church of Colossae, it was whenever he was teaching in a city called Ephesus. In, in Western Turkey today, and there was a man called Epaphras who had travelled across from a small town in central Turkey called Colossae. And he heard Paul, and he went back to his town, and he started a house group, a house church. He started a church in his house, and um, later on there's a little book called Philemon that Paul wrote also, and they were part of this, Anisimus and Philemon were part of this little house group. And so it wasn't a massive church, the church at Colossae. 
Paul wrote this letter to encourage a small church, and there were two other small churches nearby in nearby towns called Laodicea and Hierapolis. So these little groups, they encouraged each other, and when Paul wrote this letter to Colossae, he encouraged them to read it with the Christians in the other two towns as well. So they were small churches, but who were encouraged. And when you think about it, here we are 2,000 years later, reading this letter. God can do amazing work through small groups and churches and home churches and all kinds of people. God doesn't get too uptight about size. It's effectiveness. And when we are sowing into people's lives the word of God and and the character of Christ and the hope of heaven, who knows where that will end up? And certainly in today's today's world of internet and Zoom and all the rest of it, you just never know uh, what effect the word of God will have in people's lives. We will get to eternity, I think, and Maybe get some surprise to say, oh, I heard you in Zoom and I heard your testimony or I heard you, your little thought you shared or, you know, I have a, two sisters and one of them's always putting little verses on her Facebook page and, you know, it has an impact. You're sowing the Word of God. And so Paul writes to encourage the little church at Colossae who were up against it. There were philosophies that were being, you know, shared around, ideas of how the world began and what God was really like and how you get in touch with God or not get in touch with God and some were saying well there's levels of angels that you need to get to know you know and everything that was invisible was good and everything that was visible was evil that, that, that's how the Greeks in the ancient world the philosophers seen it and then there were others that said that you, you need to keep rules and regulations what you eat uh, you know uh, what days you, you, you take off or holy days and what days you have to remember to do with the moon and the stars. And, and there were all kinds of ideas floating around in this melting pot of the ancient world. And so the Christians, they were coming into the middle of all this and being challenged. Some people were saying, oh, I know you've trusted Jesus, but you need this also. That's a big red light for the Apostle Paul. Whenever someone says Jesus is not enough, he, he, he gets on to that very quickly. The, the Christians in Galatia, uh, you know, they, they were going down a road where they were adding some rules and regulations to your Christian faith. And Paul write the, wrote the whole book of Galatians to tell them to hold on to their freedom in Christ. They've been set free. Don't let someone else come along and put you under bondage. So he writes here to the Christians in Colossians chapter 1. And in the early verses, he reminds them what a real Christian is. And he says this in in verse 3 of chapter 1. We always thank God. Can I encourage you to be a thankful person? It does your heart good to be thankful. You know, if if you're not sure whether it's a good day or not, you know, thank God for fresh air. Thank God for some sunshine. Thank God for your breakfast. Thank God for your home. Thank God for your family. Make a list and keep going. Learn to be a thankful person, a thankful Christian especially. And Paul, he is always thankful, even though he's in prison and in chains. Uh, Paul's amazing because he discovered that while he was chained to the Roman guards, he realized they were chained to him. And so they all heard the gospel. 
Because he just went about his daily devotions and I'm pretty sure he sang like he did when he was in prison at one time uh, 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 with Silas. And the prison guard got saved because I think they were singing the gospel. Uh, So by the end of it, half of the soldiers of the elite Roman guard had become Christians while Paul was in prison because they were chained to him. So sometimes when we're in circumstances that seem to be impossible, you can turn them around to say, well, the Lord has me here for a reason. Maybe I'm working in this job because the Lord has people in my job situation who are open to him and who need to hear the good news of the gospel. And so Paul, he's writing and he's encouraging these, these, these uh, young Christians to be Uh, faithful and he he says we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus when we pray for you I can say to you here this morning that there were people elsewhere praying for the Christian church here in Inniscordi I know that for a fact you know in our fellowship up in County Andrew we pray for you and we pray for the work here and and that God will continue to do a work in this part of Ireland there are folk in France uh, there are folk in our international network who pray for uh, the folk here in this part of the world that the Lord will bless you and keep you. And so Paul, he's praying for the Christians in Colossae. And he says, for we have heard of your faith in Christ. He's going to show us the hallmarks of a real Christian here. And the first one is your faith in Christ. A lot of people are confused about Christianity. They think it's about the church or a religion. Or a set of rules. Or a denomination. Or identity. There's lots of things that are mixed up with the idea of, of, of what it is to be a Christian. Paul says the first thing that you need to be clear about is it's about faith in Christ. Now Paul has never met this church. He's never been to Colossae. He only met Epaphras. And he says, <clears throat> we thank God for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints. Evidence that you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is shown by your love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, I used to laugh when we lived in Marseille in, in, in southern France because some of the new Christians, as they were struggling to live with other Christians, which, I mean, I don't know why they would ever struggle to live with other Christians, do you? <clears throat> But it's a challenge, isn't it? You know, you can use, choose your friends, but you, you can't choose your family, they say. Um, but he, I had a friend who came from a, 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 an Islamic background, and he used to say, you know, I have no problem with God. I love God. It's the Christians I can't stand. <laughs> well, the Apostle Paul says, that doesn't work for me. He says, you know, if you love the Lord Jesus Christ, you have to understand the Christians are his family. They're his children. And any of us who have children or grandchildren know that one of our great prayers and our great hopes is that our children will always stay friends when you're gone. And that they'll be there for each other. You know, Andy and I, we have four girls and they're growing up now and we love it when they get together and they're laughing and they're joking and they're talking with each other. And we hate it whenever they fall out. And we pray that they make up quickly and that they're, you know, um, that it doesn't become doesn't fester and become something too seriously. And we hope that when 
you know, if the Lord takes us, that they will stay friends and be there for each other. Some of them are married, some of them are not. Some some <coughs> children, some of them don't. But you pray that they'll be there for each other. And I believe that's God's desire for us as believers. That we have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but we're there for each other. And that we'll pray for each other and that we'll put up with each other sometimes. Two of our girls used to live together and one was hyper clean. You know, she was, you went into her room and everything was in its place. The other one was the complete opposite. You went to the other room and it was like a bomb, you know, had exploded in the room. But she knew where everything in the room was. That was the, that was the surprising thing. If you move something, she would know. And they lived together. And it, it seemed to work. You know, when it came to the living room and the kitchen and the toilets, that was another story. They had to work out, you know, what went on there. And church is like that, isn't it? It's messy. But what unites us is our faith in Jesus Christ. So there's more that unites us than divides us. Because Jesus is everything. And so he says, we thank God when we pray for you, for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love you have for all the saints and because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. So here are three marks of a true Christian is they have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ they, love, they have a love for God's people and they have the hope of heaven. We have this wonderful hope. I don't know if you watch the news still. It's very depressing, isn't it? If you want to fill your heart with hope, don't watch the news. Eh? There's not much good news out there and now there's monkeypox floating around as well. You know, There's all kinds of things there to get you down. But if you want to have a heart full of hope, look at the Lord Jesus Christ. And follow him. And that's exactly what Paul's going to do in this letter. He's going to try and lift the eyes of the Christians in Colossae and help them to look up. So I want to go down to, towards the end of this chapter. Um, he goes on to talk about how he prays for these Christians. And then in verse 12, again, he says, giving thanks to the Father who has, an, who has enabled you. I want you to note that it's God that's done it. Not you. It's God who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. And this is a fantastic verse, 13. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. Think about that for a minute. It's past tense. It's been done. You have been delivered. You have been rescued from the kingdom of darkness. If you've put your faith in Christ, you are set free. You have been delivered from the kingdom of darkness. The powers of darkness have no longer any hold over you because you have the Lord Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit in your life. And it says here, that's happened. Past tense. He has rescued you. So in your darker moments, hold on to a verse like this. It's a great anecdote. An antidote. And so here he says, He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. We have redemption. Now that word redemption basically means freedom. We have been bought 
with a price. We have been set free. We were slaves to darkness. We were slaves to sin. And we have been redeemed. And he says, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Again, I hope you're feeling light this morning. These are past tense. We've got it. We've already got it. You have been redeemed. And you are forgiven. And I hope you live in the goodness of that this morning. That, hey, we're forgiven. We don't need to carry the guilt and the shame and all the things that Satan wants us to carry on our backs. Because of him. Verse 14, the last two words say, in him. And it's almost like Paul stops for a minute. And like some commentators actually believe he now breaks into song. And it's almost like he says, I hope you realize who I'm talking about. You know, it's, 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 it's like he stops for a minute and says, you've got redemption and forgiveness of sins in him. Do you know who I mean? And he says, this is the part that I want us to really get this morning. He almost breaks into a song or some kind of confession of faith or some kind of ancient, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, verses that people memorize. And he says this, he, this is the hymn I'm talking about, he is the image of the invisible God. He's talking about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. There's another verse in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, it says, he is the exact representation of the invisible God. In case you're thinking it's kind of image, like we talk about image today, We're in a very image-conscious society. Have you noticed that? People are very conscious of their image, you know. Even young guys now are very conscious of their image, you know. They spend a lot of money on themselves. (laughs) They used to not care, but we have a whole industry encouraging us to, you know, take care of our image because you're worth it. You know? And people project their image onto the internet, onto Facebook and all kinds of things. Sometimes they call it a profile. But is it the real you? Or is it a projection? You know, Johnny Depp had a certain image, didn't he? A real cool dude, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean and all kinds of things. But that's a long way from the reality of Johnny Depp's life, isn't it? And, And in today's image conscious world, the difficulty is that people are projecting something that isn't really them. The problem comes whenever that image gets destroyed and they have serious psychological problems figuring out who they are anymore. And we are seeing that today. And the further the image you project is further from you as a person, the greater the danger of psychological difficulties later on in life when that image gets destroyed. And I see it in, in, in my part of the world where we live, you know, the car people drive, the house they live in, the school they go to, the university, the qualifications, uh, uh, you know, the way you dress, uh, um, where you go on holiday. All these things come, come into play, don't they, with, with a person's image. But God sees the heart. He said one day to the prophet Samuel, who was trying to choose a king from seven sons and some of them were really good looking and Samuel was saying it must be him it must be him and God says nah it's not him but he's tall and he's handsome and he's good looking he's strong he, you know, he, he looks the part yeah but it's not him and the Bible says man looks on the outward appearance but God looks at the heart 
Now, whenever Paul says here that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, what he, he doesn't mean that kind of image. What he's saying here is Jesus is the real deal. What you see is what you get. He doesn't just talk the talk, he walks the walk. When he came along and he says, I am the resurrection of life, he proved it by raising three people from the dead and rising from the dead himself. When he came along and he said, the son of man, he was talking about the prophecy of Daniel where the son of man comes down from heaven to be with men and to show people what God was really like. You see, we all have a difficulty and in Paul's day, the Greeks had a huge difficulty in trying to imagine what God was really like. And the Apostle Paul, he came along and he said, look at Jesus. If you want to see what God's really like, look at Jesus. Look at his compassion. He walks on the water. How can he do that? Peter tried it. <laughs> it didn't work. Just for a few minutes it did, as long as he kept his eyes on Jesus. He healed the sick, he raised the dead, he had power over sickness and disease, he had power over demons and the, and the powers of darkness. He had power over death. He had power over nature. So when you look at Jesus, basically Paul's saying you're looking at God. In fact, he, he just agrees with Matthew. If you, can, if you open the New Testament, the very first chapter it says, in the very first chapter, it says, Emmanuel, God with us. And that's who Jesus is. Can I say kindly to us this morning, keep it simple. Don't make Christianity complicated about rules, regulation, what church you belong to, how you dress, what rules you keep, this, that. Are you in Christ? Have you put your faith in Christ? Because it's not a religion. It's a relationship with a living person called Jesus Christ. And he is the image of the invisible God. It goes on to say, the firstborn over all creation. Now that word firstborn, some people have used it to say, oh well it means Jesus was created because he was born. That's not what Paul is saying. It's an Old Testament expression that basically means the greatest or supreme. And you'll read about it in Exodus chapter 4 verse 22 where God said to Moses, Israel is my firstborn, so tell Pharaoh to let Israel go, or he will lose all his firstborn children. Now, Israel wasn't the nation, the first nation ever to be born. So what did he mean? He meant that Israel was his special nation. He was talking about status and position. In Psalm 89 and verse 27, it's talking about King David. And the psalmist says, he is the firstborn of all the kings of the earth. Well, we know that David wasn't the firstborn king. There was Saul and there were many other kings from other nations. So what he's saying is, he's the greatest of all the kings. So here what the writer's saying, he's the image of the invisible God, the exact representation of God. This is Jesus. And he is supreme over all creation. And if you don't actually believe that, just follow what he says next, just to emphasize it. He says, for everything was created by him, that's Jesus, in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, 
We've been singing about that this morning, the God of all the armies. Whether rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. So there's the eternal existence of Jesus. And by him all things hold together. Wow. If you really want to have a good friend, make friends with Jesus. Because he holds it all together. I read a few weeks ago about the scientists who have discovered the furthest star that they've discovered so far is something, it, it took 13 billion light years to get here. And that's mind-boggling, isn't it? It takes eight minutes from the light from the sun to get here. Eight minutes. So imagine what a light year takes. The speed of light traveling for one year. And the furthest star is 13 billion light years away. And by the time the light from that star got here, it was already twice as far because the universe is expanding. So they reckon it's about 30 billion light light years away, the furthest star. And there's further stars beyond that. And there are further galaxies beyond that. And they're still discovering that something like 90% of the universe is dark matter. They can't even see it. Imagine the sizes involved here. And it says here, everything was created by him. In heaven and on earth. I've seen another program this week about the atom. The smallest thing. I mean, (laughs) we can't even see atoms. Sure we can't. We can split them. (laughs) But we can't make them. (laughs) You know, we're a long way from creating an atom. He created the atom. And scientists still don't know what holds the atom together. You know, little parts spinning around. And they seem to hold together. Because when you spit it, look what happens. The, the, the force that comes out of it. And it says here that he holds all things together. Verse 17. Wow. That's Jesus. He isn't just the carpenter's son, is he? He isn't just Jesus from Nazareth. What was it? One of the... Early disciples said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Because it had a bit of a bad reputation. The postcode in Nazareth wasn't really sought after. But this Jesus who came from Nazareth, who was the carpenter's son, and others would be, maybe would also say, an illegitimate child, you know. Others would say, who does he think he is? You know, what Bible school has he been to? You know, very often he was ridiculed is none other than the creator of the world. Wow. That's who we're worshipping this morning. That's who brought us together this morning. That's who holds us in the palm of his hand. You know, I love that little song. We very rarely sing it anymore because it's not cool. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole wide world in his hands. He's got you and me, brother, in his hands. He's got you and me, sister. He's got the tiny little baby in his hands. Isn't that amazing? What a saviour we have this morning that we have come to sing about and worship about. And we have been reminded through our songs this morning that he holds it all in his hands despite the troubles. I mean, Paul was in prison when he wrote this, don't forget. The Roman Empire were a very, very vicious, cruel regime. They crucified people. 
It was a reign of terror. Israel was an occupied country at this time. They weren't living a picnic. They weren't living in the affluence that we have today. And yet they worshipped the saviour of the world. So Paul in his very first chapter he says to them, he's your saviour. He's also your creator. And then briefly he goes on to say in verse uh, 18, he is also the head of the body, the church. I hope you get that. He's head of the church. He's the boss. You know, years ago I was in Africa, in Zambia, at one of our centres, and I went to a local church, and uh, they were singing in English, and it was very subdued, and then somebody started singing in Bemba, the local language, and everybody got up and started dancing and started swinging and started really, it was almost like an aeroplane taking off, you know, as they began to worship God. And then one of the young people who led the choir, they had about 40 people, young people up the front, in the choir, he stopped everyone and he said, turn to the person beside you and tell them, you're not the boss. (laughs) And so, about 300 in the church, you had 300 people, you had wives turning to their husband and saying, you're not the boss. And husbands looking at their wife and saying, you're not the boss either. And children looking at their parents saying, you're not the boss, you know. And then some parents looking at the youngest and saying, you're not the boss, you know. And then he said to everybody, now look up and point up and say, you're the boss. It's his church. He brought it into being. He was the first to rise from the dead to offer us eternal life and the hope of heaven. It's his church. It's not my church. It's not the pastor's church. Some people fall into that trap. They even call the church the name after the pastor. No, no, no. It's, it's his church. It's God's church. He is the head. It's, the head of the church is not in Canterbury or Rome or in uh, Moscow or, or, or anywhere else. The head of the church is Jesus Christ. And if you notice, it's just the one church he mentions here. Even though he's talking about Colossae. He's writing to Colossae. Saying all those who have faith in Jesus Christ worldwide belong to his church. Hallelujah. It's a massive church. It's bigger than the the company Coca-Cola, by the way. There are believers in Jesus Christ in every corner of the planet today. And we're in for an amazing surprise when Jesus Christ comes back again. He is the head of the church, the firstborn from the dead. He has power over death, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, by making peace through the blood of his cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Time is beating us, but let me just highlight something here where it says that he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. Why wouldn't he have first place in everything? It's his church. It's his world. It's his universe. You and I exist because he allows us to exist. You know, one of our grandchildren was born very prematurely. Um... We actually had a photograph of her the other day. She was getting dressed up for a school 60s event and 
She looked like a teenager, but when she was born, I think it was at 25 weeks, or you know, so she was very small. I have a picture of her, and she's like a little kind of fish, the size of her. It's just slightly bigger than the palm of my hand, believe it or not. And uh, in our church, we actually thought she wasn't going to survive. And we prayed, and we realized after praying and talking to the Lord that if the Lord wanted her to be here, she'll be here. And that sounds awfully simplistic, but it's true for us too, isn't it? We're only here because he allows us to be here, and he's granted us the gift of another day, because we're only, all of us are only three minutes from eternity. You don't believe me? Okay, try it. Stop breathing. <laughs> Not now. Wait till after the service is over. <laughs> it says here that he might have first place in everything. Does he have first place in your heart? Is he the boss? Or is it something else? Is there a false idol in there that needs removed? Is there something that's more important than Jesus? I would implore you to think about that because it'll, it'll pass. There's only two things in this place this morning that are eternal. And that's the word of God in you. Everything else will, will go. Your house, your car, whatever it is. Even your bank account. That even might go quicker than you think. If you read the papers. He has to have first place in our hearts. Paul said, the Apostle Paul said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. It says in this passage that everything not only was made by him, but for him. The universe was made not for you and me. We're not the center of the universe. Even though some of my grandchildren think they are. And I used to think I was. It's not about you and me. It's about him. We come to worship him because he is worthy. I heard someone ask a pastor one day, you know, after the service was over, he went up to the pastor and he said to the pastor, I didn't enjoy that worship this morning. (laughs) And the pastor, who was quite witty, turned to him and said, oh, I didn't realize we were worshiping you. (laughs) That's the difficulty, isn't it, today in our individualistic world? It becomes about me. It becomes about us. And that actually entraps us in a mindset that is not healthy for ourselves. I want to recommend a little book by Tim Keller. It's called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. I have a few copies with me. It's just a tiny little book, three, three chapters. The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. It's a great book. It's an explanation of the gospel and how that we get set free when we stop always thinking about ourselves. <laughs> In fact, it's a, it's, a, it's a challenge on the, um, the self-esteem culture that has been promoted over the last 20 years where it's all about building your self-esteem. The difficulty with that whole thing is you're at the centre of it. <laughs> it's all about you. That'll set you thinking already. Get the little book. It's worth a read. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. He is worthy. He is the one who's to be glorified. Because he's the only one who can handle fame and glory and power. and was, He's the only one that can handle it. Putin couldn't handle it. Donald Trump couldn't handle it. Many leaders cannot handle it. When they get into positions of power, what happens to them? 
for change. They think they're God, and then they realize they're not. Jesus is God, become man. He's the saviour of the world. He's the creator of the world. He's head of the church. What a saviour. What a Lord this morning. I'll close with these few verses. Verse 21, he says, Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds because of your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you, and I want you to grab this, this is a fantastic verse, to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. That's one of God's great plans for you and for me. To present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. He will do it because you and I can't do it for ourselves. So he says, hang in there. Remain grounded and steadfast in the faith. And don't be shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you've already heard.